Welcome to Fertility Now. I'm excited to have Monica Moore back for another episode. She's been on so many times. Today, we're going to be talking about those pesky ovarian cysts. Monica is a nurse practitioner and has a master's in nursing from the University of Pennsylvania. She's been with us many times. Just to talk, She's been a founder and is the founder of Fertile Health Expert and is an educator, health coach. You see people from all around the country. And Monica, you're even coming out to see us at a loom um, next, next week. What are you, uh, what's happening? I am. I'm really excited. Well, you know, we have a really robust uh, PCOS program um, and we talk a lot about weight, either extreme and fertility because it is important. So we're doing a staff education on that and, um, I'm meeting with the PCOS group to see uh, what new materials we can have. And I think we're going to hope to be able to educate other, you know, providers, OBGYNs and other providers about this as well. And just really kind of partner in everyone's care to you continue to work on being comprehensive, which we were doing before. And then COVID kind of put a big pause on it. So I think we're trying to get back into that now. So we're really excited. Yep. So that's happening on Tuesday. So I'll be there. We're all going to be there and listen to you talk and coach us and teach us. What do you think, not to put you on the spot, what do you think is going to be, like, what's the biggest message we'll take from that event with you? A one-liner. Um, that, oh, well, if we're just talking about the disease of obesity, which I think when we talk about an extreme in weight, more people suffer from that, that we see than you know, underweight, and that it is complex, nuanced. There's a humongous right. genetic component, particularly in the higher BMI categories, um, that it is not a character trait. It is not easily controlled. Um, willpower doesn't always factor into it. When you have, um, you know, when you're in a higher category and you feel like you have a lot of kind of excess weight to lose. And so there's a lot of messages that we as providers should be giving to, you know, our clients. And it can, you know, affect fertility, as we know, in certain ways. But we have to have, I think, reasonable expectations for our clients um, as they're going through. And I think the newest data or the newish data talks to us about that. So it's just going over that as well. Okay. So I can't wait to hear you talk to us. Basically, be respectful to everybody. So let's get into cysts. They're common. And you know what, Monica, I think um, our patients feel the word cyst is maybe a bad thing or it's a problem and it's really not. Right. We see them all the time as part of the menstrual cycle. Right. So, you know, there's a couple words that I think get used interchangeably. So egg, oocyte, those are the same thing, follicle. And a follicle right. is just what you said. It's a fluid-filled cyst that usually holds an egg. And as the follicular fluid increases, as the egg matures, so it's an indirect, when we measure the diameter of the follicle, it's an indirect measurement of the maturity of the egg because we can't see an egg, it's microscopic. So we all have these cysts, so to speak, um, especially clear ones. Um, those are usually follicles. And then the second part of the menstrual cycle, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about the corpus luteum, is the cyst that remains after the uh, egg or oocyte that is ovulated, hopefully, and fertilized. And its goal is to make progesterone. So we need the follicle to sort of house the egg and nourish it. And then we need the corpus luteum to support the uterine lining. What we don't want or can be, you know, sort of annoying is when they when they outstay their welcome, right? When they stay a right. little bit too long and we, we don't want, we want them resolved before the next cycle. Right. So when we 
For example, our patients come in on day three of the cycle and they want all those little follicles to be small so we can stimulate them. And one of those is kind of hanging around. Right. You know, kind of, I'm going to dumb down what you said for myself. <laughs> Basically, first 14 days, one follicle grows, right? Follicle grows from five millimeters to 20 millimeters. And as that follicle grows, it has an egg in it. The follicles making estrogen. And then around mid-cycle, estrogen's up, LH surge goes up. Like you said, egg releases, and that follicle where the egg was converts to a corpus luteum, which makes the progesterone to maintain the lining. So it's just like a nice, you know, not for everybody, but it's a nice 28-day kind of over and over cycle. But those cysts can linger. Right. And we want a corpus luteum to linger when someone's pregnant because that keeps their hormones at a good level until the placenta kicks in. That takes a couple of weeks to kick in. So we need a persistent corpus luteum then. What our patients uh, struggle with a little bit is when they're not pregnant and they're excited to start another cycle. We come in, you know, we always do a baseline ultrasound because we want to make sure everything is back to normal. And lo and behold, let's say let's say that we cite a big cyst, and um, you know, we really we measure it, um, and it really depends on a couple things. One is is that cyst kind of hogging up that ovary, so let's say that we get blood work back and the blood work is the levels that we like to see normal levels, but that cyst is taking up a lot of that ovary. Then that ovary doesn't have really a chance to produce follicles that month. Now, maybe if you're just doing a cycle where you need, you know, two to four follicles, maybe okay. If the other ovary does, but the question is we need to really take into consideration who you are, what infertility factor there is. If we know that what you've done previously, what your expectation is, and then, then with that into consideration, are we giving you the best chance if we let you go through, um, you know, with right. a cyst that size? Right. So it's sometimes like that. You come in, you know, day three, and that big follicle is taking up real estate, as I right. think. And then we all the little other follicles don't have enough room potentially to kind of, let's say, go into a clomid or a fumar cycle and make a big follicle. Monica, what about, you know what we hate is when people come in, those follicles are making estrogen. Right. Yeah, so so many of the medications, so particularly the oral medications, depend on the brain perceiving low estrogen levels. They do that in different ways, but the brain has to perceive the estrogen levels are low, so it can make a hormone called FSH and give you a good chance of getting a couple follicles if you normally ovulate and one to two follicles if you don't normally ovulate. Well, when your estrogen level is already high, there's no way that those medications can work. Um, even if you're doing injectable cycles and your estrogen level is high, your uterus is exposed to estrogen. Who knows if it ended up shedding? Again, it's just not necessarily starting you at the at an ideal point in your cycle. And, right, you're not being slow. Right, right. And so, you know, as you know, we always try to balance what, how quickly you want to go through versus are we giving you an idealized cycle? And sometimes there's a clear answer either way. You know, sometimes there's a, a squishy answer that we're not, you know, that we're not so sure about. There's not a perfect science on if it's this many, you know, centimeters, and this is what's going on with the person, we have to take a lot into account. Um, and that's kind of where the, the, the art, as opposed to the science comes in. Um, but, you know, there are certain things or certain strategies that we use when we see cysts that are either large, producing estrogen or producing progesterone. So maybe you're not pregnant, but the corpus luteum didn't resolve and the progesterone level's high. And we know for sure, starting off with a high progesterone level, we cannot do uh, in cycles. There's, you know, data, more and more data on that. 
that it, it hinders implantation when we start with progesterone. And I'm going to take exactly what you said. Sometimes, Monica, I see people come in, they, they're irregular, they haven't gotten their day one of their cycle. And like you said, they have a, they have a cyst that looks like a corpus luteum that's not clear, but it's kind of fuzzy with a little fluid, a little blood. And we check their blood work and we find out, hey, you actually did ovulate. That is a corpus luteum because your progesterone is up and you should be getting a period within potentially less than two weeks. So then we can say, hey, that's cool. That cyst is what it is. You're going to get a period in less than two weeks. It'll call us day one and then you'll be baseline. Right. And sometimes the that cyst is like just medium. The estrogen levels are just a little bit high. And that particular situation, we might say, come back in two to three days. Let's just see if everything is down. And sometimes, often it is, and sometimes those levels go up and we have to wait till the next cycle. But, you know, if it's really just borderline, we would just wait a couple of days and, and see then if it resolves on its own. Right. So, you know, we, we see them often, and I think as a group and as a, as a, as a medical practice, we're good at monitoring them and, and kind of telling our patients what to do about them. Right. You know, you know often we have, and you commented quickly, residual cysts. So someone had done, let's say, a letrozole cycle. They did not get pregnant. They got day one of their cycle. We ultrasound them. We see a lot of little nice follicles ready for a new cycle, but they have a cyst there that's, oh, 20 millimeters clear and is not doing anything. So basically, you know what? I figure in that situation, let's say the egg released, it hasn't fully collapsed. We'll ignore it and put them into a cycle. Well, it's another reason to do the baseline, right? Uh, because yeah. then- if you have a bunch of follicles growing, we see, okay, there's 20 millimeter cysts now. We're not going to count it as a, you know, a follicle that actually has an egg. So as the cycle progresses, we have to keep in the back of our mind and look back at the baseline and say there was a 20 millimeter cyst. These other three 15 to 17s are players, so to speak, in that cycle. And like you said, we're going to ignore that. But another reason to keep that in mind when you look at the baseline. Right. I think that's a good point. So that baseline, like you said, we'll note that there's a 20 millimeter follicle cyst in our chart that's not doing anything. There's no estrogen. So then when they come in for their mid-cycle to look for the big follicles, we know to not kind of count that right. as something real and kind of ignore it. And it's just fine. Right. And we should probably back up just for a moment too. And because we've talked about letrozole or taking medications to make a couple of follicles. So just to to, to back up, so we are, as women are born with all the eggs we're ever gonna have, they're stored in the ovary. Each month, a certain number of eggs get withdrawn uh, from our egg supply. That number depends on you, specifically your age, and even what's going on with you that month. It can vary month to month. So those get withdrawn from your egg supply. That egg supply is not replenished, which is why you know years and years go by, we go through menopause. And then day, around day five through seven, in a regular cycle, a dominant follicle, a follicle be, establishes itself as dominant and should we not give anyone medications, like you said, that one follicle goes on to ovulate, uh, mature and ovulate. What we do with the medications is we try to salvage some of those. Let's say you pulled 20 from your egg supply. Um, we give you medications before dominant follicle formation to try to salvage those. So with pills, maybe we'll salvage three to five. With injections, maybe we can salvage 18. So they're still pulled from your egg supply. When we give you medications, we're not going through your egg supply quicker. We're just keeping more of the ones that get pulled out from being wasted. So I just wanna make that clear because sometimes when people 
um, go through a cycle or they see cyst, there's a concern about either waiting or making a lot of eggs that we're using more of the egg supply. And we're not, we're actually keeping the ones that would normally just be reabsorbed um, to keep them mature and going. And that's why we're very specific about call us right after your period because we've got to capture those prior to dominant follicle formation. Right. Good, interesting point. A lot of our patients will feel like, hey, you're doing these cycles with me and am I going to early menopause or am I going to deplete my egg supply? And like you said, no, we're just kind of bringing up to the forefront what you kind of were trying to bring up anyways. So like on that Famara cycle, we're trying to bring up, you know, one to three follicles, one to three eggs, depending on your situation. And in the IVF cycle, we're trying to bring up a bunch of follicles and and mature those and take those out at, at the time of egg retrieval. Right. Totally cool. And just like being now, on birth control pills, we're not saving your egg supply, being on medications, we're not wasting it. Your body's going to kind of do what it's going to do. And we will manipulate your cycle so that to optimize your chance that month. Right. We use birth control pills a lot right. in our patients, often on starting them on day three to kind of give us time sometimes to get them approved to go into a cycle. And and I want to hear what you feel about this. And sometimes on an IVF cycle to kind of give them seven to 14 days to kind of quiet the ovaries, get the follicles at the gate and get them ready for stimulation. How do, you, how do you feel about using birth control pills? Yeah, so it's, it's so weird when people come in to see us, right? And we're like, I know, that's why I wanted pill. to talk about like, that. I've spent 20 years yeah. on birth control pills. That's not what I'm here for. Um, yeah, so I think I, well, as somebody who works with people with PCOS, I think that birth control pills are one of the best things should you not have a contraindication to them to do. But we do use them because we need to manipulate your cycle such that we're not missing that dominant follicle formation. We can grab you before then. So what the pills do is they pause, so to speak, your cycle. Usually pills will do that. Um, and then when you stop the pill, then we're kind of off running and we would expose you or give you some medications um, to, in usually a stepwise fashion in order to uh, make follicles. The other reason we get birth control pills sometimes is people with cysts. And so people will say, "Are you? is this birth control pill kind of curing or managing my cysts? And it's not what manages the cyst or helps uh, helps us with it is time. So the option when you have a cyst is to wait a whole nother menstrual cycle, or maybe they'll go away in one to two weeks. So if we put you on birth control pills, again, we have to go with your cycle. We can't just see you in two weeks because you'd be at the wrong part of your cycle. But if we put you on birth control pills and we pause your cycle, then we scan you and the cyst is gone, then we can stop the pills and you don't have to wait a whole month. So that's why we use birth control pills for that too. I like how you said that. We're kind of pausing things. Yes. We use birth control pills really to our advantage to kind of, you know, really to help our patients get into cycle, manipulate here and there. They're really cool. I like the word pause. I'm going to use that more. The other thing that we use medication-wise when someone has a cyst um, that is, is interesting is a trigger shot. So let's say that someone comes in and they have, you know, a pretty decent size cyst, 18 to 25 uh, millimeters, um, and estrogen and progest estrogen levels are high. Then again, we can wait for this to, to go away, or we can give you a trigger shot, and which is the shot that you would take um, HCG to mature and ovulate. So to mature and kind of ovulate the cyst, and then we know in 10 to... Because when there's a cyst that's really making that high estrogen, that can take a while to go away. Maybe you right. know it just is not behaving itself. 
And it can take four weeks, it can take six weeks. No one wants to wait that long. But we can sort of organize your cycle around the shot. So we give you the trigger shot. It's not to help you get pregnant that particular month, but it's to help this resolve. So then we know in 10 to 12 days when we see you, you will get another cycle usually, and then we can see you and we can start without having to wait for too long. Right. So we can do that trigger shot. You'll get a bleed, let's say in two weeks or less, then we'll bring you in day one. You know, we'll, you'll call day one, you'll come in day three and you'll be baseline. Right. So we've, t- we've given away a lot of secrets yeah. here of, but, but, but it's how, Super but you know what, it's how, yeah, but it's how we can get our patients into cycle to ultimately get their goal of getting a good cycle and getting pregnant. Right. These are all these tricks that our field has. It's so, it's so right. neat. And the cyst that we have talked about so far, so we used to call cysts like simple versus complex, and no one really likes those terms anymore because they are too vague. Uh, we're really trying to describe actually what we see, you know, is it clear? Is it, does it have what's called echoes different? When you put an ultrasound in, what happens is it, the, the distance between the waves and and what it's trying to look at, if there's something in the middle of it, if it's just fluid, it's black. But if there is different tissue, let's say there, it can create things that are white. It can create things that look gray. So we try to describe these as much as possible. And so far, what we're describing are clear cysts that very, very extremely rarely ever go on to become a problem, almost always resolve. They're always what we call physiologic. We see them in a regular cycle. If people are walking around the street having these, but they're not getting ultrasounded, so they don't know. So um, And they they don't feel anything. So we, we try to be very precise when we describe kind of what's going on as opposed to, you know, just this. And, you know, you, how many ultrasounds do you think you've done? You know, it's amazing. I've, you know, and you, you've ultrasounded, you've scanned with us too. Thousands and thousands, hundreds a week for forever. So like you said, they're almost always clear cysts. Right. The other thing is, is, uh, that I am always comfortable with am I like working, you know, at a loom with people is because ultrasonography is you have to have many hours doing it to really kind of be an expert. You have to sort of have seen everything. Um, but it's also like you need to be currently doing it. And I was I was listening to this podcast about um, this. It had nothing to do with medicine, but it talked about when people are underwater diving um, and they it's it's a it is a field where you can't um, not do it for years and kind of go back to it. And I feel like it's the same way with ultrasound. So I think we feel pretty confident, you know, in what we're seeing and what we're telling you because we do ultrasound so often. We have so many of them. We're quick to refer if we need to. But I feel like with the physicians and the, you know, mid-levels that we have there with the tons and tons of experience, that you know, you we feel really confident what we're doing, and if we see something that's not clear, and is usually is still not an issue, we can definitely guide you and tell you in our experience, this is what this is, this is what it means, etc. Right. So I would tell you that our practice and, and doctors around the country in our field are amazing ultrasounders, and I'm going to kind of take what you said and kind of run with it. And again, most of the time we're seeing clear physiological cysts. But guess what? We see other ones. So I'll start out and you and I can go back and forth. One cyst we do see, you know, once in a while is the endometrioma, 
which is a cyst that is not solid black, kind of like you commented on, which would be a clear cyst that has water, basically. But it has like endometriosis fluid, which is brown or, or black. And the, the cyst is going to look what we call ground glass appearance throughout. And it's very easy to see an endometrioma. And a lot of our patients who have endometriomas who see us, they know they've had them and their history goes along with it. They've had pain, pain with their menses, can have pain with intercourse. Um, sometimes they're not painful. And you know what? Most of the time we'll just leave them alone this day and age and kind of work around it because often they'll have follicles around that endometrioma or they'll have another ovary full of nice follicles and to remove it can sometimes remove other nice follicles on the ovary and that is reflected in the data on them so endometriomas are cysts that we would not see go away that we would follow like you said they have a pretty um um, easy to recognize appearance. There are Absolutely. some that I, I now I don't have as much autism experience. There are some that I've seen that I have shown other people because they're, you know, they just don't have a very typical appearance, but they do right. go along with somebody that has that. If that's the case, sometimes we refer you or we get um, other imaging studies. And it doesn't mean right. that we think that it's bad. It just means we just want to confirm because if it's not going to go away, we want to make sure that we're not putting you at risk. But they have some sometimes an atypical appearance. But like you said, we don't usually remove them when someone uh, in, uh, is going through fertility treatments, particularly in reproductive years, because there is some data to show that, like you said, we it's you just you can't just remove it without affecting the normal tissue. And so what right. we see is, you know, sometimes AMH levels, which uh, anti-malarian hormone can go down in women when they're removed. Um, sometimes you see less antral follicles, those beginning follicles be less there. So unless somebody's having, you know, crazy terrible pain or we're concerned about this not being an endometrioma, we usually like to just it. leave it be. Yeah. And so like you were commenting at the time of surgery, mostly now laparoscopic or um, with the robot, you're taking out that endometrioma and you're being very careful not to, to take out other um, tissue of the ovary, but you really can't avoid it. So like you said, this day and age, we're leaving them unless you have terrible pain. Dermoids are interesting. Yeah. I, I know everyone loves them. I mean, you're both smiling. The reason why is because they have different textures in them and different colors and they can have bone and hair and oil teeth. and teeth. So those all look they're different from by ultrasound. They, we, I think that they're called like dashes and dots or something. So hair is like these white dash looking things. And then, yeah. you know, again, the ultrasound is trying to get through to, you know, its target and these different textures and tissues are in the way. So it looks different to us by ultrasound. Um, these are totally fine. The other word for them is mature teratoma in case you get some report back that says that. Anytime we hear something OMA, I think we get nervous, but it's just another word right, right. that. Um, and again, these hardly ever, very, very rarely ever go on to cause a problem. We just would do what's called surveillance. Uh, when you're with us, you're getting ultrasounds all the time. If you're not with us, we would just look at it let's say every six months. And as long as it doesn't change, just leave it be. Another one that we don't remove uh, usually when someone's yeah. going through fertility treatments. And Mon, a lot of our patients, they even know they have when they come in. So we show it to them and they're like, yeah, it's cool. It is a dermoid. It doesn't cause me pain. You know what? There's other nice little follicles around right. that dermoid. People have we named ignore. theirs. <laughs> oh, yeah. So in our time, oh, yeah. I don't want to age us. There were these things called mad balls. 
Do you remember those? They're like yeah. these balls that bounce, but they had like weird faces with teeth out and weird hair. And so this woman named her as like Mad Ball. Um, so yeah, that's my Mad Ball because the way that they described it to her, they're really, you know, interesting. Um, but again, they're more of a nuisance and just uh, what we call inadvertent finding. Most people don't have any symptoms really from dermoids. Nothing. Nothing. Now, the one that we see sometimes is the hydrosalpings, right. which is interesting. Our patients, if you think about the fallopian tube, which is attached to the uterus, and at the end of the tube, you have the fimbria, which pick up the egg off of the ovary. If those fingers are scarred shut, that fallopian tube can fill up with fluid. And so then on ultrasound, like you were commenting, that fluid echoes black, and then the hydrosalpings will be like a tubular sausage right. appearing structure. So we see those. <laughs> right. Know. And that's not technically an ovary. So the ovary and tubes together are called adnexa. And usually when we're kind of looking with the ultrasound, we're looking at your adnexa. And the tubes, we don't usually really see or notice because they there's nothing in them usually that makes the ultrasound either light up or make it black, except now we have a hydrosalping. So anytime you see something, a good ultrasonographer, a, a, an ultrasonographer experience, I should say, will see that kind of sausage-like oblong black and have to identify, first of all, where is it coming from? So if it is, in fact, in the tube and it's a hydrosalpinx, that's something, um, especially if it's, you know, a, a decent size that we would need to talk to you about because having that in place can somewhat decrease uh, implantation rates. Yeah, so those hydrosalpings, you know, you may have had a history of blocked tubes or some sort of inflammation in your pelvis. And like you said, if it's full of fluid, the problem is that that fluid can retrograde or go back and go into your uterine cavity where you have those nice implantation proteins. So we know our patients who have hydrosalpinges and have that fluid. Like you said, you can't see the tube on ultrasound, but if it's full of fluid, you can see it, that fluid is toxic and will go back into the uterine cavity and can decrease implantation, kind of mess up implantation proteins, decrease pregnancy rates with IVF, and you know, we take those out. Right. So we got that. Paratubal cysts, they're just right next to the ovary and they're round, a couple centimeters. We ignore them. We see them. Right. Again, people name them, just joking yeah. with me and you. <laughs> they're there. They they often don't go away and they don't cause any issues. Right. So we leave them. the only thing really of the things that we mentioned that we do anything about is remove is the hydrosalpings. Um, you know, when we're going through stuff, we we kind of manage or wait for the other things to go away. We'll do what's called surveillance and just look them over. But really, in terms of removing or having to do anything, the only thing that would be uh, concerning would be the hydrosalpings of all the stuff that we mentioned. Right. Monica and I wanted to make a quick mention to the concept of a torsion. Very rare, but kind of comes into the jurisdiction of ovarian cyst. Kind of a classic situation is, let's say someone's doing an IVF cycle. And, you know, the ovary usually is three centimeters and it's small and it's suspended um, in your pelvis and real nice, as you would say, in the adnexa. But if you have a bunch of cysts, you know, big follicles, they can kind of make the ovary unbalanced. And in very rare situations, the ovary can twist on itself and cause terrible pain because it's compromising the blood supply and nerves. And people have terrible unilateral pain, really bad, comes and goes, and they know something's not right. Right. They know. 
but it's rare. You know, Monica, I was thinking, so in a torsion, what will happen is it's kind of at the end of the day, that's a surgical situation where we'll have to bring a camera in, the belly button, and kind of untwist the ovary. And usually that's all we have to do. But, you know, if I think about it, Monica, in our practice, the amount of times we've had a torsion in the last 15, 20 years, I can count on a single yeah, hand. I can think of one or two. Very rare. Um, so, uh, like you mentioned, so the the ovaries or the whole reproductive system actually is suspended on ligaments. So it doesn't just kind of like lay flat in the pelvis. It's, it's held up by ligaments. So the ovary is too. And so the ovary is you, the ligament that suspends it is used to holding an ovary, you know, that weighs a certain amount, a certain amount of follicles every month. Well, when we hyper stimulate you, that ovary gets big and it's supposed to, but if you, you know, one of the reasons that we don't have you during a stimulation cycle do you know, high impact stuff, do a lot of stomach stuff, twisting stuff. It's sort of theoretical, but just to be safe is that big, heavy ovary is like a water balloon now, right? On this ligament that's, and it's kind of hanging from that. And so when it's heavy like that, that is when it can twist or whip or, or have torsion. Um, it is remarkable pain. If you had that, you would absolutely know. It is considered an urgent situation. And so we always have people call us, but it is more of a we, it's one of the things that we're pretty good at preventing from happening now, um, but it is one of the few urgent situations. And the other urgent situation that we should mention is an ectopic pregnancy, which we call pregnancy of unknown location, a pregnancy that occurs outside the uterus, which is another thing that we might see um, by ultrasound that an experienced ultrasonographer would have to realize, wait a second, that like that is not a follicle, that is a sac that is somewhere situated often in the fallopian tube, sometimes at the very top of the uterus um, in, a, in a place in the uterus that can't support a growing pregnancy. And so that's another situation that we usually can treat medically as long as you're stable. But that's another thing that we're always double checking. Whenever we see something that we're not sure or concerned about, we always do a pregnancy test and make sure that we rule the scary stuff out first. Right. It seems like recently we've had a bunch of patients with, like you said, pregnancy of unknown location. And when someone's pregnant and those levels of beta HCG are not going up correctly, we always worry, could it be that that pregnancy is stuck in the tube, which is rare. It's a percent. But we watch people really closely and ultrasound them to, to make sure that we're not missing something in their tube. Well, we're kind of so annoying we about it because we just act as if you have it until proven otherwise. That's right, what we have right. to do. And that's the safe thing to do. But it's just better to be that you have this an ectopic or pregnancy of location until shown otherwise, because we can always kind of go a little be a little bit less conservative, but we have to start by being conservative to protect you. Right. So if there's, we are always protecting ourselves from the 1% because we would not never want to miss that 1% time when that pregnancy is stuck in the tube where we can really treat it medically and not let it get bigger and bigger and rupture the tube and have a surgical problem. So I think we're really good at following pregnancies of unknown location. Um, and we're really careful. I think sometimes our patients get a little bit annoyed because it's kind of dragging things on, but we have to for safety. Right. And I would say, what would you say, what percent we treat medically now as opposed to surgically? 90? Yeah. So we are able to treat it medically with an injection that we've been using for a long time now. Um, And it usually works one or usually, I think now we give it twice because we were finding we needed to give it twice. So we just go ahead and give it twice, uh, you know, once and then uh, for the fourth day of that, give it to you again. And that seems to really, the majority of people um, kind of 
uh, take care of it and help it resolve. So even that is usually not surgical, um, but we're ready if we need to treat it surgically. Right. That's another thing, like when we are seeing these things, weekends, right, Labor Day, Labor Day we're here. I mean, we do follow people. We don't just kind of send you off. If we're concerned with something, we will take care of you in office for that. Watch people so closely. And like you kind of said, physicians and um, people like us and you and our nurse practitioners and our physicists, physician assistants who ultrasound are really good at picking these things up. Very serious. Right. So I think the one of the reasons we wanted to do this, this topic today, besides just talking about normal ovarian physiology and kind of normalizing it is the concern that everybody has about ovarian cancer, right? So we hear about these right. cases of people who are relatively young and, um, you know, this cancer is, pretty deadly because it's caught so late um, for many people that have it. Um, and so we wanted to address it. But one thing I want to say is that we, our patient population is premenopausal, most, mostly, yeah. almost all premenopausal. And the greatest risk of ovarian cancer is age, it's menopause. So um, premenopausal, the, the risks of it are much lower that it, it can happen, but the risks are much lower. And without a family genetic tendency, one of the BRCA genes, uh, a couple other tendencies, um, you're really not at risk for it, but it doesn't, it's, we would still watch you closely if we were ever sure of something that, um, you know, didn't, what we call, so we, we have something that we can say, this is definitely benign. This is, we're not sure. And this one is concerning. Right. And so anything that's in those middle two categories, we either watch you closely or we send you to somebody that would know, but it is incredibly rare. Um, and Very especially rare. with us, because we look at ovaries all the time, the people that end up getting this are people that you don't have to get ultrasounds. So, you know, you're walking around and there's a, you know, vague symptoms, you don't get an ultrasound and, you know, and then by the time they see ultrasound, they see something and that's what's scary, but we're ultrasounding people once a month, you know, almost. So if there's anything going on there, we are sure to capture it early. Oh yeah. We're going to see it the minute we scan them. Right. From the from day one, and so kind of feeding off what you said, those rare and suspicious cysts in one of our young patients, which is very rare, we think about them being above ten centimeters, having different components in the cyst, papillary and solid and irregular appearances, not like the clear cyst, not like the dermoid, not like the endometrioma or the hydrosalpings. We, we can see it. Experts like us can look at that cyst and say, you know what, this is not correct. Right. And we have a color flow Doppler. And so we can put that on. And then sometimes we see color flow inside of those solid, what we call solid components. Sometimes you see what are locules, like little pouches, you know, in there. And that yeah. doesn't always mean that that's that, but that's another, we need to follow this closely thing. But all of those things that you you talked about would be very concerning for that. And then we would refer somebody out. Right. So we would use one of our oncology um, colleagues and collaborate with them. And listen, there are very rare times when an ovary like that um, is evaluated. Sometimes the ovary is removed. Sometimes the cyst is removed. But thank God, like you said, this is really not part of mining your field because it's so rare. It's so rare. And that's I always tell people that's why you hear the stories in somebody who's young right. having it. Thankfully, that's why you hear the stories because it's rare. But you hear the stories because it is not normal. It is not common to have that. Right. I've been yeah. doing this for 27 years and there has been one person and they had a very early caught 
um, uh, adenocarcinoma uh, of ovary, which is, a, I think, a type of it. And they ended up finding it and she ended up being okay. But we're lucky because we get to see people so often that we can catch it right. early. But even in keeping with all the people that we've seen, there's been one person that I can think of. Monica, same with me, one or two people. And like you said, caught early and both those people went on to family build and, and we took care of that. I think the last thing you and I wanted to talk to our audience about was aspirating cysts. Let's be specific before our patients go into an IVF cycle. So it can happen where um, our patients are going to come in day three. Am I baseline? Am I ready to go? Their hormones are very low, their baseline, no estrogen, but they have a big cyst, two, three, four, I'm going to say three, four, five centimeters, clear, dark, just with water. And that cyst is taking up a lot of room and is pushing out those nice other little follicles. So sometimes with the, we can bring them to the operating room, a little local anesthesia and suck out the fluid out of that cyst, have it collapse. And now that ovary is kind of ready to be stimulated and go into a nice IVF cycle. Right. Or if it's one of the clearer ones that we've had that are a little bit smaller, but they're just not going, it's just not going away. Not going away. So uh, it's just like, instead of waiting and waiting, we would do that. There's a likelihood that that fluid can reaccumulate and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong, but it won't reaccumulate usually within that month of the time of your cycle. But there are some people, and we don't know why somebody is necessarily at risk for this or why it would end up reaccumulating. It doesn't mean anything's wrong with you if it does. It just is, let's, we're just trying to do it to kind of, like I said, Get, get you into your cycle. There's probably many women that walk around with three to four yep. centimeter clear cysts and have Absolutely. no idea and don't care. And um, we don't care. But for when you're in a fertility cycle, you know, our, our, our goals are a little bit different. Right. We want those ovaries basically to respond to the medicines, to get a lot of follicles to grow from five millimeters to 20 millimeters. And so if we can kind of drain that other cyst and kind of cool things down, um, potentially they'll have a better cycle. So we do that. Right. Not, not so, so often, but we do it. So in kind of closing, we also, you and I talked about the dermoids and endometriomas. We kind of leave those alone unless they're symptomatic. Um, I'm going to be seeing you soon, yeah. which is going to be really cool. You're going to be helping all of us and doing some, some things with our nurses. Any closing comment you want to throw out there before we leave? Anything on your mind, reproduction-wise? Well, well, I'll give I'll give one shout out to this PCO Awareness Month. Um, cool. I did a Instagram live with our marketing, um, one of our marketing, uh, uh, great marketing per, uh, colleagues, and it is on the Illum site. The entire video, and if you're co if you comment on it, we are doing a drawing of everyone that commented, and you get a free health coaching session. So I did uh, by Zoom. You don't need to come in and have that done. It's local. But so I would love if you are interested in that to watch the video, comment on it, give us your thoughts, et cetera. So that is that um, PC Awareness Month. We, you know, we feel so strongly about taking care of those patients. Um, PCOS, by the way, uh, I, might, I should mention just while we're talking about cysts, <clears throat> polycystic ovarian syndrome. I've had many PCOS patients tell me that, you know, they're, they're scared because we use this word cyst um, and they have many of them. They just have a bunch of follicles that the ovarian environment is such that they don't mature and ovulate. So they just sit there. And so we see them by ultrasound, but they're not scary cysts. They are just cysts that don't end up getting big, ovulating and going away. 
So I just want to mention, because a lot of people, like, I was told I have all these cysts. And, you know, when we think of cysts, we think of things bad. But really, it's this term that we use, you know, quite loosely. And in PCOS patients, that is part of the diagnostic criteria is that you have many of them and they're not harmful. Um, And so then just to close with this, I, I, I think that what's important is to know that the majority of ovarian cysts are what we call physiologic. They are cysts that we normally see in a cycle. Uh, either a follicle or crypsudium that haven't gone away or resolved by the next cycle. Um, and very, very, very rarely are there, are they scary or concerning? The greatest concern is when someone is menopausal, uh, along with some of the symptoms that you recommended. And the, if anything, they're annoying. And then because they might delay things and we have lots of tricks and tools to delay it as short as possible without, you know, messing up your cycle or, or hindering your cycle. I think you said it better than I could have. And so this this podcast was your idea, but it's so important because like you said, the word cyst makes people upset, but the reality, like you just said, we see them all the time. So we got this. And I think we as providers need to realize sometimes like that word can be a little triggering. Like we just have to be a little bit, you know, more explanatory when we say things because we, we are so used to seeing them, but somebody's not used to having them. And so I would say this with any of your provider, if you're not sure what's going on and they seem, you know, it feels dismissive to you or it feels like you didn't get your questions asked, then you should you should ask your question, say exactly what does this mean and what are my next steps if you're not sure. Right. And for us providers, when we're talking to you, we need to do a better job and make you not worry about what they are. Basically a sack of water. Right. Cool. Okay. Well, on that, it was great talking to you, Monica. Remember, our patients and patients can see you on FertileHealthExpert.com. And you're taking care of so many patients and helping them with all kind of reproductive stuff. So thank you for that. Thanks for having me. I love, uh, as you know, coming on here. I usually do all the podcasts that I have are are my idea. I send you a message. You want to do podcasts on this and you always pick me up on it. So I'll do anything with you because I really feel the way both of us explain things, it comes out really good because we look at both sides of right. it. So thank you again. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Spencer Richland. Email me at fertilitynow1 at gmail.com. Thank you very much, everyone. Bye-bye.